Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Sponge Revolution. How the Chinese Communist Party is Building an Ecological Civilization. Written by Ike Freeman. Published in The Wire, China. Read for you by Kaiser Guo. In October 2013, the coastal city of Ningbo, which is home to 10 million people and the world's fourth largest port, was hit with a torrential flood. Wastewater systems and rivers overflowed. Five people were killed, and more than 100,000 houses were inundated with brown water polluted with sewage, industrial chemicals, and heavy metals. Flooding is a perennial problem in southern and central China, but in the last three decades it has gotten much worse. All along China's coastline, cities are sprawling, and developers are paving over wetlands and hemming in rivers between concrete walls, leaving no place for floodwaters to go. In summer 2020, China suffered 21 large-scale floods, the most in over two decades. More than 30 rivers swelled to their highest levels ever recorded. Authorities had to blow up smaller dams to ease pressure on the gargantuan Three Gorges Dam astride the Yangtze River, which may have been close to structural failure. City administrators have responded by laying more pipes and widening canals, but in many cities, like Ningbo, these efforts have been nowhere close to enough. Urban flood management is a massive challenge in China, says Faith Chan, an assistant professor of environmental sciences at the University of Nottingham's campus in Ningbo, China. The government has studied it carefully and is committed to taking action. For thousands of years, water and politics have been intimately linked in China. The founder of the mythic first dynasty, the Xia, supposedly left his wife and child for 13 years to construct irrigation canals along the Yellow River, earning himself the appellation Great Yu, who controlled the waters. More recently, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor, held a PhD in hydraulic engineering. Chinese political thought is littered with anecdotes and sayings about leaders who controlled the waters, or failed to. It was against this backdrop that Chinese President Xi Jinping, just months after taking power in 2013, proposed a novel solution to China's water problem. Rather than build more dams, canals, and flood walls, China needed to turn its sprawling metropolises into sponge cities, by clearing vast open areas in low-lying urban centers and filling them with parks and wetlands. In times of plenty, the interlinked green spaces could absorb and retain water. In times of drought, they could filter water and either recycle it for household use or release it gradually into nearby river systems. Xi's sponge city idea was a repackaged version of tried-and-true foreign design practices. Dutch hydraulic engineers, who for centuries devised methods to hold water back, are preparing for climate change with plans to create room for the river and to let the water in. Singapore, 
Melbourne, and Portland, Oregon are all, in one sense or another, sponge cities, but Western engineers use clunky terms like low-impact development, sustainable urban drainage system, and water-sensitive urban design to describe the designs. They're all essentially the same thing, says Tim Fletcher of the Waterway Ecosystem Research Group at the University of Melbourne. But the sponge city is a clever marketing term, so even though the concept is not new, the term captures people's imagination, including the decision-makers and citizens, and that's really helped it to be successful. Indeed, China's sponge city program is rapidly scaling up. With orders to become sponges by 2030, 70% of Chinese cities are scrambling to draw up plans. The initiative's goals are also growing broader and more ambitious. What began as a targeted intervention to affordably manage urban flooding has now become a central pillar of two epical policy shifts, China's decision to go green and the national adaptation strategy to make China more resilient to climate change. China still has a lot to learn, but I think it could leapfrog us in the next decade, says Nanko Dolman, who works in the Water Resilient Cities group at the Dutch civil engineering firm Royal Haskening DHV. In Europe, we do lots of local-scale, low-impact design projects at street or neighborhood levels, but China is implementing these projects on a district and city scale, e.g. urban wetlands or eco-corridors. It is showing that ecological design can be about more than just green roofs and rain gardens. It can be a revolutionary rethink of the very texture of a city. The Sponge City campaign has also taken on an ideological character. As a catchy slogan for eco-urbanism with Chinese characteristics, it has become a symbol for one of Xi's most cherished projects to establish China as a post-industrial, ecological civilization, As a result, visionary urbanists have been empowered to push for an aggressive greening of China and represent a new vanguard of Chinese environmentalist thought and practice. One of the most well-known is Yu Kongjian, dean of the School of Landscape Architecture at Peking University, who leans into his revolutionary role. Yu likens the modern practice of building cities out of concrete to the ancient Chinese practice of binding women's feet. Like the radicals and reformists of the May 4th movement of 1919, who called for a sharp break from the old ways, Yu preaches the need for a Bigfoot revolution to rip off the restraints and let the green space grow. We need sponge cities, says Yu. We need to adapt to nature, to adapt to stormwater. We need to remove the concrete and recharge the aquifers. Otherwise, we're doomed. We're going to die. Sponge cities are not just a philosophy. They're in action. Persuading the Party Yu is not the only major Chinese designer or theorist of sponge cities, but he is the program's most famous and influential advocate. As a graduate student and junior academic in the 2000s, he laid essential intellectual groundwork for the program by persuading the Chinese government that ecosystem-based services could save China from environmental collapse. Charming and fluent in English, Yu also plays an important role in bridging Chinese planners with their Western partners. In Ningbo, for instance, Yu is one of the main designers of New Eastern Town, a sponge city that is being developed piecemeal by various designers and financed largely by public-private partnerships. Centered around the newly built Ming Lake, the development contains a business district, cultural facilities, transportation links, 
residential high-rises, and walking and cycling paths through finger-like terraces planted with reeds, flowers, and trees. Yu's Beijing-based design firm, Turinscape, has completed over 500 sponge parks in over 200 cities across China. His vision for the Chinese city, he says, is agrarian urbanization, an eco-utopia that involves grafting contemporary ways of living with 2,000 years of nature-based agricultural life. Born in a rural village in Zhejiang province, Yu studied forestry in Beijing before going on to the Harvard Graduate School of Design for his PhD. After graduating, he abandoned a lucrative career designing luxury homes in Los Angeles to take a teaching job at Peking University. He later founded the university's Graduate School of Landscape Architecture. While Yu was still in graduate school, he began to publish academic articles about China's ecological security, which at the time was out of step with the party line. The Communist Party's position was that climate change was not a security issue and that China, as a developing country, had a responsibility to prioritize economic growth. But a group of scholars at Peking University, including Yu and the influential climate change expert Zhang Haibin, began to push back. Environmental degradation imperiled China's national security and social stability, they argued, not to mention China's ability to sustain rapid economic growth. Yu found innovative ways to illustrate his findings, including satellite imagery and geospatial mapping. In 2006, he presented his research to Wen Jiabao, who was then serving as China's premier. Wen agreed to sponsor a study, and Yu's report was published in 2009 under the title National Ecological Security Pattern Plan for China. It found that China was on the brink of a wide-ranging ecological crisis, including flooding, desertification, erosion, and biodiversity loss, each of which posed its own national security crisis, and each of which was made even more acute by climate change. Most importantly, Yu's report noted, if China tried to address these problems individually without recognizing how they were linked, it was doomed to fail. China needed a comprehensive solution, an ecological one. Kong Jian is an advocate for trying to use natural processes to mitigate environmental damage, says Peter Rowe, who teaches at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. That's a difficult concept to sell in China. Yu, however, turned out to be a good salesman, persuading many party elites. After decades of unbridled development and minimal limits on pollution, a consensus was emerging that China needed to change course. The sponge city idea gained momentum in part because it meshed with another of Xi's favorite concepts, ecological civilization. While that slogan preceded Xi's rise to power, it did not become mainstream until his term in office. Xi's oft-quoted line is that a bluer sky, greener mountains, clearer water, and a more beautiful environment are the ardent expectations of the people. To date, nearly 200,000 Chinese news articles have mentioned ecological civilization, and dozens of propaganda films sing its praises. The phrase has even been written into the National Party Constitution alongside Xi Jinping Thought and the Belt and Road Initiative. The point is not just that the party aspires to build a beautiful China, but also that it is following a distinctly Chinese philosophy of harmony between man and nature. For the past 40 years, we have followed a Western model, says Yu, 
We have copied everything from Western urbanization when building infrastructure and imagining urban life. In the process, we have become totally disconnected from our tradition in terms of the way we live and our relationship to nature. The solution, he says, is to go back to Chinese ancient wisdom and integrate natural systems into human design. Kong Jianyu is a master of merging global ideas and applying them in the Chinese vernacular, says Frederick Steiner, dean of the University of Pennsylvania's Stuart Weitzman School of Design. He's extremely important in his ability to understand the broader global trends, but then make them very Chinese. Indeed, while Yu advises top party officials, he also likes to take his ideas directly to the masses, giving talks and appearing on television. He has even published a book titled Letters to the Leaders of China, which includes notes personally addressed to Xi Jinping about the Sponge City program and a conversation between Yu and the dissident artist Ai Weiwei about their philosophies of art and design. While most Chinese intellectuals are extremely risk-averse about writing in English, particularly on political topics, Yu has, so far, proven skilled at threading the political needle. The fact that he feels so free to voice his ideas also shows how comprehensively the party has embraced them. Yu Kongjian's great talent isn't just his skill as a designer, says Steiner, it's his ability to promote his ideas to the power structure. The Sponge Olympics Thanks to China's unmatched capability for central planning and civil engineering, it has taken less than a decade for Yu to start enacting his ecological vision at scale. It takes a very long time in the Netherlands to implement our designs and to test and validate new innovations, says Chris Zevenbergen, a professor of hydraulic engineering at the University of Delft, who collaborates with Chinese cities and universities on knowledge transfer projects. But in China, it is completely different. I spend my summers in Nanjing collaborating with experts and students. When I come back the next summer, we can already see our designs being implemented. Indeed, the astonishing speed of the Sponge City rollout illustrates China's ability to use its cities and provinces as competing laboratories of innovation. When Xi gave his speech about the Sponge City concept in December 2013, most Chinese urban officials had never heard the term before. But immediately afterwards, the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development ordered a nationwide pilot trial. By March 2015, less than 18 months later, over 100 cities across China had made a preliminary application to transform themselves, and the ministry had selected 16 semifinalists. Each semifinalist then had three years to build and operate a sponge city demonstration area that was at least 15 square kilometers in size, or more than four times the size of New York City's Central Park. One of the 16 was Pingxiang, a coal mining city of 1.8 million people in the flood-prone hills of western Jiangxi province. With a stagnant economy and decaying water infrastructure, Pingxiang was used to crippling floods. In Wanlong Bay, a former mudflat north of the city that had been paved over by urban sprawl, local residents often had to use boats to get around during the rainy season. The city government had been trying for years to manage the flooding by laying new drainage pipes and sending teams of earth-moving machines to dredge the canals. Nothing worked. Pingxiang officials took a gamble by taking part in the program. In October, 
A few months into the competition, the State Council published a high-level guidance document for the competing cities, outlining the basic principles of sponge city construction. These included adhering to the ecology-based natural cycle, giving full play to mountains, forests, fields, and lakes, and other original terrain and landforms on the accumulation of rainfall, giving full play to vegetation, soil, and other natural substrates on the infiltration of rainwater, giving full play to wetlands, water bodies, and other natural purification of water quality, and striving to achieve the natural cycle of urban water bodies. In other words, the central government knew what it wanted sponge cities to do, retain water, and the basic principle of how they should work, use ecology-based solutions. But local officials had to figure out the rest, including how to pay for the sponge treatment. The ministry had set aside a small pot of 20 billion yuan, about $3 billion, which wasn't much when divided between the 16 competing cities. The state council advised local officials to make up the difference by issuing bonds and encouraging local banks and investors to contribute. On the biggest question of all, the process of evicting communities and demolishing infrastructure to clear the land for these new sponge parks, the state council was silent. Pingxiang's mayor, Li Xiaobao, said that he was nervous when he got the news that his city had been selected to compete. He now had just three years to transform his city into a sponge, while also solving the intransigent challenge of the annual floods, with no meaningful technical guidance or engineering help. It was like crossing the river while feeling for stones, Li recalled, invoking Deng Xiaoping's famous saying. Nevertheless, Pingxiang officials got to work. Upstream, they built diversion tunnels to shunt water around the city rather than through it. Inside the city itself, they built marshes, mudflats, and three lakes as big as the Onassis Reservoir in Central Park, surrounded by parks with terraced green lawns. Downstream, they built pump stations to regulate the flow out of the system. It worked, partly. The next two floods that hit Pingxiang were still notable, but they caused much less damage than floods of similar sizes had caused in previous years. When the ministry announced the results of the pilot competition, Pingxiang had come in first place. Li was celebrated as a hero in national propaganda films and news stories. Almost immediately, the ministry decided to take the Sponge City program national. In phase two, 14 larger cities including the four Tier 1 cities of Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Tianjin, were ordered to become sponges too. By 2020, just five years after Pingxiang started implementing its sponge city program, the central government set a target that 20% of cities in China should collect and recycle 80% of their rainwater. By 2030, 70% of Chinese cities must meet the target. Green is not always good. This top-down approach to implementation has its critics, of course. After the first pilot program was completed, the Ministry of Housing and Urban-Rural Development replaced its vague guidelines with an exhaustive set of technical standards, drawing largely on the best practices from Pingxiang. Now, city officials and their design partners across China often have the opposite problem, an inability to adapt the program to local needs. They are building sponge cities according to rigid rules and strict design standards, rationally, like a grid, says Dolman of Royal Haskening DHV. 
We have standards in the Netherlands, of course, but they are more generic. You have to leave room to have a dialogue or discussion and find more tailored and community-attuned solutions. Others fear that China's bureaucratic culture is overconfident about its ability to engineer its way out of climate change, which is a complex challenge requiring more than just a one-dimensional solution. Chinese bureaucrats, especially in the field of urban planning, like to think of the world as a scale model, says Li Yifei, a professor of sociology at NYU Shanghai. They see extreme weather events as aberrations or external shocks to the model that can be accounted for and canceled out, as if any problem in the world could be engineered away. In reality, the threat is that climate change creates unforeseen risks or compounding problems that are hard or even impossible to plan for. Most provinces' five-year plans lack clear references to urban climate change adaptation, which suggests that China is doing relatively little comprehensive climate planning on the local level. Moreover, given the top-down mandate regarding green initiatives, the local incentives can become distorted. Many local officials, for instance, are trying to double or triple count the credits they can get from any given sponge drainage project, according to Li. For example, they send their project to the National Development Reform Commission to get recognition as a low-carbon city, Then they might pitch the same project to the Ministry of Science and Technology as a smart city project, and they might repackage it as an energy-efficient housing project and market it to the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development for some other recognition, Lee notes. As they try to game the system, extracting maximum political benefits and subsidies with minimum investment, China's sponge cities may end up compromising on or even ignoring the technical specifications that make constructed wetlands effective at absorbing and cleaning flood water. And if this is the case, it will be difficult for anyone, Chinese or foreign, to know. Experts say that the monitoring systems that are necessary to keep the wetlands healthy are another likely weak spot in China's sponge city program. China still has to figure out what data to collect and how to collect it, says Franz Vandeven, associate professor of urban water management at the Faculty of Civil Engineering and Geosciences at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. You can imagine that this new way of thinking asks for new data to be available. Recording rainwater is simple enough, but when it comes to, say, the ecological condition of the water system, sometimes that is monitored and sometimes it is not. There is also an asymmetry between Chinese cities' voracious interest in acquiring knowledge from Western urban planners and their reluctance to share their own data in return. China offers very little information about what it is learning from its own projects, bad and best practices and so forth, back to EU collaborators, says the University of Delft's Zevenbergen. The pilot projects started in 2014 have been evaluated, but the results have still not been shared with China's European technical advisors. This is constraining the collaboration with the EU because, for some reason, it's seen in China as a politically sensitive issue. Finally, some have argued that the new Chinese concept of ecological civilization differs from Western ideas of environmental conservation in subtle but important ways. As Xi himself frequently points out, ecological civilization should prioritize people-centered development. In a recent critique, Alan Shearer, the Associate Dean of Research and Technology at the University of Texas at Austin School of Architecture, 
argued that this implies China's goal is to prevent systematic environmental collapse, not for its own sake, but because it would create problems for human beings. In other words, as long as the ecological system works, individual elements near collapse, such as endangered species, can be safely ignored. Green is not always good, says Liu Junyan, senior campaigner for energy and climate at Greenpeace East Asia. You have to emphasize that the biodiversity and the diversity of the ecosystem is most important for maintaining the basic function of nature. Liu notes the Sponge City program is well-intended but poorly and often destructively executed. Frederick Steiner at the University of Pennsylvania believes these criticisms are unfair. Think about Central Park, he says. It isn't just some pristine place that was preserved, a fragment of Manhattan that survived urbanization. It was designed. People were relocated. Its construction was part of New York's urbanization process. Many people do not see landscapes as infrastructure, like bridges or roads, but they are. Like traditional infrastructure projects, sponge cities face serious challenges to execution. Since they require massive funding, construction time, and the political difficulty of acquiring the land, Western countries seem unlikely to copy China's national-level policy of spongification anytime soon. Democratic countries also require consensus among the stakeholders, which can be an obstacle to radical change. Imagine telling New York City residents that they're going to be drinking recycled sewage, says Harvard's Rowe. That'd be a hell of an ask. So far, the West is also missing the ideological spin that has made China's National Sponge City program such a success. In China, it is about much more than urban water management, climate change adaptation, or even the greening of China's cities. It is a patriotic program to foster a distinctly Chinese philosophy of ecology, one that centers around the relationship between humankind and nature. Every year that I go back, I see the scope of the sponge city concept broadening inside China, says the University of Delft's Zevenbergen. It's no longer just about water quality. It's about livability. It's about local benefits. It's about sustainability. Despite the lack so far of a similar uptake in the West, however, many landscape architects and hydraulic engineers think that China's large-scale adoption of sponge cities has consequences for the rest of the world. It may even cause positive ripple effects. I have noticed throughout my career that the rise of new countries in championing low-impact development seems to re-energize the countries that have been doing it for a while, says Fletcher of the University of Melbourne. China's embrace of the sponge city concept and their effective communication of it has encouraged other countries to champion the same principle. That seems to be part of Yu's vision as well. I have no separation between Eastern and Western, he says. To me, there are just two kinds of civilization right now. One civilization means industrialization, and one civilization means ecological civilization. Western and Chinese are just at different stages right now, but we will eventually come together to seek ecological civilization.